Welcome to Standing Firm, a Come Follow Me podcast. Here are your hosts, Jordan and Louis Unga. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Standing Firm, where we talk Come Follow Me scriptures each and every week. My name is Lou, here in studio with Jordan. And uh, Jordan, what's up, man? Not much. Doing great. How about you? Good, good. So... Here in the Standing Firm Studios, we have acquired new microphones. There was nothing at all wrong with the microphones that we had previously, but I'm a tinkerer by nature, so I have to tinker <laughs> with stuff. And so now that we're serious podcasters and we have you know more than 15 people listening every week, we need new <laughs> microphones. So what happened with this episode was we had recorded this episode previously, and we had an issue with the new mics. So we're re-recording it, and because of that, I already know what's going to happen. We're going to get done with this episode and it'll turn out fine, but I'm going to realize that I liked the other one better. But, you know, there's nothing we can do about that, right? So That's the perfectionist in you at its finest. Yeah, yeah. It's a blessing and a curse. Right. So we're studying in Second Nephi chapters 11 through 19. Um, a lot of chapters, right? But a lot of them are shorter chapters, too. There's, I don't think there's a chapter in here longer than 30 verses, but... Uh, we're now getting into what we refer to as the Isaiah chapters in the Book of Mormon. And obviously, I know that during the Sermon of Jacob that he mentioned some of Isaiah's words, but this is where Nephi really takes a deep dive into, into the Book of Isaiah. I know for me, during the many attempts to read the Book of Mormon, I get to these Isaiah chapters and I'm like, uh, let me just flip a few pages here. King Benjamin, perfect. <laughs> but... I'm, I'm really grateful for Come Follow Me for so many reasons, but the biggest reason, or one of the biggest reasons was the study of the Old Testament that we did a couple of years ago. Before that, I think it's safe to say, like a lot of us, I wasn't exactly an avid reader of the Old Testament, but right. when we Same. yeah, when, when we all read it together for Come Follow Me, I was honestly stunned with the deep feelings of gratitude for these prophets and these words, which I had kind of just glossed over in the past, you know? Oh, yeah. It's like I was aware of the stories, but I was missing the deeper meaning in the words. I was missing their connection to Jesus Christ. So studying the Old Testament in this way, I have a greater understanding and, and admiration for the people of this time, uh, the way they did things, their manner of worship, their command of communication, and just their course-altering faith in Jehovah. Certainly, Isaiah is included in that class, and I'll never skip over these chapters again. You know, they're overflowing with power and just full of compelling and authoritative testimony of the Savior. And I think we'll see that and feel that as we get into these chapters. Amen and amen. Now, there's a trend that I noticed with Nephi and Jacob and how they often heavily quote Isaiah. So here there's 433 verses of Isaiah the Great that's quoted in the Book of Mormon. And over half of them are given with a slight difference than what you would find in the King James Version of the Bible, mm-hmm. while about 200 of them are word for word. You know, It's the exact same. And if you think of the timeline here, Nephi and Jacob have studied heavily from the words of Isaiah as they lived a little over 100 years after him. Yeah. So when you think about it in those terms, this gives a very accurate teaching of these words as we know over time that many teachings and truths were lost or translated incorrectly from the Bible just over time. But that's the whole beauty of the Book of Mormon is we can know of assurance that these words of Isaiah are in its purest form. 
Yeah, absolutely. One of the great verses to start off in chapter 11 is in verse 4. It's written, For this end hath the law of Moses been given, and all things which have been given of God from the beginning of the world unto man are the typifying of him. Hmm. The symbolism of the law of Moses can be hard to understand. When I first learned about some of the things that they participated in and, and some of the things they did, I was like, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> and I think some people in the world probably think the same of some of the ordinances and covenants that we partake in as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day right. Saints. Right. But if you think about these practices in the Law of Moses and the context that they're given here in verse 4, is that all things are the typifying of him. Think of these things in terms of their relationship to Jesus, and it becomes at least a little bit more clear. The Law of Sacrifice, for instance, points directly to the Savior. Jewish traditions surrounding birthright and the firstborn in a family, the events of the Passover, uh, Jehovah's deliverance of the children of Israel from bondage in Egypt, that's a symbol for Jehovah's future deliverance of all mankind from the bondage and woes of sin. Mm. When you look at the Ten Commandments, they all point to Jesus Christ and his teachings. The first four commandments deal with showing your love and loyalty to God, and the last six all command you to love your neighbor. Uh, Jesus described love of God and neighbor as the first great commandment, and the Ten Commandments, like everything else in the Law of Moses, was a precursor to a higher law. So our ability to do the work of the Lord really isn't possible if we don't love God with our whole hearts and love our neighbors as ourselves and that love is the foundation for the work of salvation and redemption. Love the connection there with the law of Moses and Jesus Christ. Beautiful. Something that stood out to me was right there in verse 7. It says, For if there be no Christ, then there be no God. And if there be no God, then we are not. For there could have been no creation. But there is a God, and there is a Christ, and he cometh in the fullness of his own time. So he will come when his timing is right. You know, I love this testimony from Isaiah here. I feel like we live in a world that constantly wants to put little plugs in here and there to push any sort of belief in God to the back burner. And I love these words from a well-known prophet of God declaring the existence of the Supreme Creator. Moving into chapter 12, in verse 3, Isaiah discusses something that is a fulfillment of a prophecy that had been given by many prophets, including Joseph Smith. This verse is in reference to the two great cities that will serve as sort of capital cities in a way during the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. In verse three, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And that is exactly what it sounds like from the city of Zion on the American continent will come the law of the land and sort of administrative authority. Think of Washington, D.C., what it is to the United States. Hmm. And from old Jerusalem will come the word of the Lord, or ecclesiastical authority. So these two great cities will be built and rebuilt by the hand of the Lord and will serve a, a very particular purpose according to the prophecy. I've had some conversations over the years with people who are a lot smarter than I am about the millennial city of Zion, where it is, what it's going to be like, how the law of the land will be administered under the Lord's governance. You can get really deep on this, and there's plenty of literature and articles from prophets of God to read if this is your type of thing, if this interests you. And there's nothing wrong with being interested in this type of thing. Right. What I'll say about it, though, and I'm going to choose my words carefully here. Anyone listening is free to disagree with me. I, I won't be offended, but it seems to me that if your study of this type of doctrine 
leaves you with feelings of anxiety or fear, or you spend an awful lot of time, excessive amounts of time studying something like this. And, and this happens to a lot of people. It probably is one of those good, better, best things. Mm. You know, it's definitely interesting and it's a good thing, but there are very likely better things to do with that time. Like we talked about previously with the law of Moses, focus on loving God and neighbor and everything will be just fine. It's kind of like golf. Let's try to keep our eye on the ball. Which I'm not very good at doing, apparently. It's all right. None of us are. <laughs> so for me, big thing that stood out to me for the next three chapters, 12, 13, and 14, is Isaiah lays it down pretty hard of what will happen to those who are prideful and how their downfall will be harsh <laughs> and it will lead to misery and endless woe. And this led me to a training manual called Preach My Gospel, that, that is something that missionaries from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints use to improve their studies and overall efforts in missionary service. And there's an entire chapter that's dedicated to the attributes of Christ. And I'd love to share what it says about humility, that humility is the willingness to submit to the will of the Lord. It is the willingness to give Him the honor of what is accomplished. Humility is a sign of spiritual strength and not weakness. And this last part I really love. The opposite of humility is pride. To be prideful means to put greater trust in oneself than in God. It also means to put the things of the world above the things of God. Simply put, pride is a great stumbling block, which I'll talk a little bit more about pride as it pops up later in the chapters. Definitely stuff I wanted to point out there from Preach My Gospel. It's some pretty good stuff there. Yeah, amazing. Absolutely. 20-minute show means we got to gloss over some things, which is unfortunate. But in chapter 12, verse 4 is so amazing. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. A nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Now, I fully acknowledge that what I'm about to tell you is a massive oversimplification of a more complex uh, circumstance. But... Put on your John Lennon glasses for a minute and just imagine a nice. world. Imagine. Imagine a world without war and a world without the need for massive spending on defensive people, lands, resources, and geographical borders. A quick internet search informed me that more than two and a half trillion dollars was spent on defense and military worldwide in wow. 2023. What could be accomplished with resources like that if the need ever went away? It's estimated that it would take about $330 billion to end world hunger. So how, how will the Lord end problems like starvation? Part of it will be not wasting resources any longer on things like military defense. That is what Isaiah means when he says that swords and spears will turn into plowshares and pruning hooks. Then moving on to chapter 13, Isaiah continues um, with his prophecies about the future of Judah and Jerusalem. Chapter 13 is full of repeated warnings to Jerusalem and the kingdom of Judah as a whole. In verse 8, we see an example of an Isaiah prophecy that has multiple fulfillments. The Lord said, quote, Great are the writings of Isaiah. And one of the reasons for that is that many of Isaiah's prophecies either have multiple meanings or multiple fulfillments or both. In verse 8, for Jerusalem is ruined and Judah is fallen because their tongues and their doings have been against the Lord to provoke the eyes of his glory. 
when Isaiah wrote this, there was no reason to even fathom that it could even happen. Judah was strong. The city of Jerusalem was a mighty city in the world. By the time Nephi records this, however, he knows that it has all been fulfilled. Jerusalem has been ransacked and destroyed by the Babylonians, as prophesied by Lehi. In previous chapters of the Book of Mormon, we talked about the Jews returned to Jerusalem, which kind of sets the stage for this prophecy to be fulfilled a second time. Mm-hmm. And it happens again in about 70 AD at the hands of the Romans. And of course, we know as well that there is yet to be a third fulfillment of this prophecy as Jerusalem will be overrun in the last days, as prophesied in Zechariah 14. Mm-hmm. So this prophecy had a triple fulfillment. That's so beautiful and powerful when it's all laid out there, of all the prophecies that have come to pass and really enjoyed your thoughts there for sure. Um, jumping into chapter 15. So in chapter 15, it starts out with Isaiah. He composes kind of a ballad or a poem, and it's, about, and, and it's about a vineyard. The vineyard is a representation of the Lord's work and gospel here on earth. And he brought it here for the good of mankind. But we as natural men, we tend to drop the ball often. <laughs> No. (laughs) It says that we consistently become unresponsive to Christ's invitation, which I thought was a very true statement as well. Chapter 15 goes on to say about the vineyard and how it was created to produce a sweet grape, but instead it grew a wild grape. I think this is a great reference to the apostasy that takes place. As we learn in verse 4, the Lord is quoted by saying, what could have been done more in my vineyard that I have not done? You know, the Lord's basically just saying, have I not done my job? So we learn in verse 10 that the wicked shall go through a great famine due to the lack of obedience and humility. So he references the vineyard of the Lord and how it was supposed to produce this great amount of goodness and sweet fruit. But because of the pride of men, we instead get a famine. I I love verse 13. It goes on to say, Therefore, or this is why my people have gone into captivity, because they have no knowledge. Or in other words, they've become ignorant to the true gospel. Isaiah ties a perfect picture here of a famine in the land that Amos prophesies of. Not a famine of bread or of water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. So this whole song or ballad that Isaiah the Great created here is really a cry from the Lord that his precious gospel will be removed from those that are prideful. Another thing that stood out to me in this chapter, Lou, is in verse 20. He says, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put away darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweets and sweet for bitter. I think we see this often in the world where the things that are pleasing to God are almost looked down upon. You know what I mean? That is exactly what we're up against in this world, is this behavior and this mindset. But I think that it's powerful to see a few verses after this, even knowing that this would be the attitude of the world towards the Lord. I love in verse 25 that the Lord's steady hand of mercy is forever shown here. He says, for all of his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. The Savior's atonement is there for us to use, and He wants us to use it, regardless of who we are or what we've done. And to kind of wrap things up on this chapter, the words of the great Elder Neil A. Maxwell of Quorum of the Twelve Apostles once said, 
Our merciful and long-suffering Lord is forever ready to help. His arm is lengthened out all the day long. It's a beautiful quote. His hand is stretched forth to all nations. It says in verse 26, and he will lift up an ensign to the nations from far. And they shall come with speed swiftly. None shall be weary nor stumble among them. Beautiful. Chapter 16 uh, deals with Isaiah's sacred calling to serve as a prophet uh, to, to all of Israel. Isaiah was called as the Lord's prophet at a pivotal time for Israel. He was the last prophet that spoke for the Lord to Israel as one whole assembly. Mm. And in verse 8, we learn that Isaiah volunteered for this. He said, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. This verbiage obviously contains symbolism that associates it to the account of the war in heaven, where Jehovah also offered himself as a savior to glorify the Father. In the same way, Isaiah was sent to testify of the Savior's purpose and commission. In verse 9, the Lord seems to warn Isaiah of the difficulties of this particular prophetic assignment. He said, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but they understood not, and see ye indeed, but they perceived not. The writings of Isaiah were scattered across the globe with the people who took the writings with them. The scattered ten tribes had uh, Isaiah's writings. We know that Nephi's group had them, and obviously Isaiah's writings remained with Judah as well. In verse 9, the Lord addresses this foreknowledge that he has that Isaiah's writings, like the teachings of Jesus himself, would not be understood. Neither would they be valued or heeded by all. Ancient Israel struggled to understand many of Isaiah's writings concerning the last days because it simply didn't apply to them. Mm. And the people of Jesus' day rejected his message because of their unbelief. And the same thing applies to the gospel message in these latter days. So another message of Isaiah with multiple fulfillments. I actually love at the beginning of this chapter, in order for Isaiah to gain the confidence and the faith to stand and say, to send me to go on to be the prophet. Earlier, it writes about how he felt unworthy in a vision of seeing heaven in Christ. Woe is unto me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And how many times do we feel unworthy of forgiveness of our sins too? And yet that, oh, yeah. that gift is always there for us at any time. Moving on to chapter 17, as we get uh, close to the end of our show here, in verse 14 of that chapter, this is the crowning prophecy in this chapter. Jesus's birth is one of the most profound and celebrated prophecies in all of the Hebrew scriptures. This particular passage, behold, a virgin shall conceive and shall bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This prophecy speaks of a miraculous birth by a virgin with the child to be named Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Another similar messianic prophecy is found in chapter 19. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Each of those titles carries deep theological implications. Wonderful Counselor indicates a role of divine guidance and wisdom from on high. Mighty God is a powerful affirmation of Jesus as a member of the Godhead with the strength and sovereignty of God himself. Everlasting Father emphasizes a paternal care and leadership in Jesus' role as the Good Shepherd. The Prince of Peace 
prophesies of the peace and assurance that the gospel of Jesus Christ would bring to, to all of humankind. These prophetic names and roles are woven into the fabric of our understanding concerning the Savior and His work of salvation. The significance of these prophecies being included here in the Book of Mormon is part of what makes this book not just another testament of Jesus Christ, but the principal testament of mm-hmm. Jesus Christ in these latter days. Love that. You know, of all the wickedness in the world today, that verse that you shared is the one that stands out to bring comfort to the world in every generation. It is the great reminder of Christ's mission to come and to relieve us, to be the ultimate Tylenol for our lives and to relieve us of the pain and weaknesses. Thanks for sharing that, Lou. That's awesome. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Here at the end of our show, we'll finish up our study of this week's chapters with a challenge, as we often do on the show. In the dynamic tapestry of your life where threads of joy intertwine with strands of challenge, there's an invitation waiting, a prophetic call from the writings of Isaiah to seek the guiding light of Jesus Christ in every stitch and pattern. This week, the challenge for all of us is to open our eyes to the presence of our Savior in all things, to see his hand at work not only in the grand design, but in the smallest of details. Whatever the circumstance, as one who has taken the name of Jesus Christ upon yourself, you can invoke his blessings. Lean on his understanding. Let the peace he promised be the compass that directs your choices and the balm that soothes your worries along the way. The tear jar update for today, we added $10, which uh, brings us to <laughs> a magical number of $100. Triple digits, man. Yeah. We cry too much. Uh, apparently. I, I don't really know what to do about that either. <laughs> that is all for this week. We thank you for joining us. For Jordan, I am Lou. We will catch you next week, and uh, we'll have some more scriptures to talk about. Until next time, tu'uma'u, stand firm, and we'll talk to you in a week. Thanks, guys. Standing Firm, a Come Follow Me podcast, is a production of Sierra House Publishing, LLC. The show, or any opinions expressed therein, are not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. For a transcript of today's show, please visit our website at standingfirmpodcast.com.